Welcome to Industry Focus, the podcast that dives into a different sector of the stock market each day. I'm your host, Emily Flippin. I'm Jason Moser. I'm Nick Seipel. I'm Dylan Lewis. And today we're talking financials. Today we're talking consumer goods. Wildcard Wednesday. And we're talking energy. And today we're talking tech. Let's dive in. Welcome to Industry Focus. Today is Tuesday, October 26, and I'm your consumer goods host, Emily Flippin. Today I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Asit Sharma, and we have a fun Halloween-themed show planned today, uh, courtesy of longtime listener Levy Waddell, and I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly, um, who tweeted at us and asked, can we get a show over the public candy companies in honor of Halloween? And yeah, yeah, we can. So I'm going to take a stab at the pronunciation. I think it's Levi Waddell, but that's just what I think. So Levi, let us know. Emily, I got to say, what a sweet topic for a consumer goods show. It is. It's fun because it's one of those topics that we can really only tackle here on the Consumer Goods Show. And to be honest with you, um, I know that we've had some conversations around candy companies in the past, but it's not a particularly, I guess, maybe attractive industry. Honestly, uh, not a lot of analysts spend their time looking at candy companies. Um, For the companies out there that are publicly traded in the space, they tend to be part of bigger consumer packaged goods businesses. Although there are a couple pure plays and we'll get to those. And this is an industry that you would think might have some legs because candy has a never ending demand, especially from the young with savvy branding and the use of modern technology, it seems like it could be a great business, a fast-growing business. But over time, that tends to be not the case. But this is good that Levi brought up this idea because sometimes you, you need to work through a few examples to understand why it's prudent to avoid investing in a certain sector or industry. And I think Our thesis today is that it's better to eat candy than to invest in it. But Emily, getting into the business of candy, you mentioned to me a few big picture things that turn you away from this sector. For example, it's a low margin business and it's a commoditized business. Although, as I mentioned, some candy can really benefit from great branding um, and a strong brand following. What other things about the candy business don't you like? Yes, as you mentioned, um, it, it tends to be very low margin because of how commoditized it is. And uh, while I think, we, and we'll talk about it today, everybody has their favorite candy. When push comes to shove, if that favorite candy of yours is four times the price of the next best thing, when you walk into, say, a gas station or a grocery store, are you really going to pay that much more for the branded candy? And I think for most consumers, the answer is no. They very much view candy as substitutes for one another. So it causes the business to to have a challenging economic profile. Well, again, not notoriously unprofitable, just very low margin. And uh, you combine that with what what I'd consider a relatively short shelf life. It's not you know, like milk or eggs, which are much shorter, but we still have expiration dates as well as just constantly trying to keep up with the changing consumer taste and preferences for different foods, for different flavors. It's a lot of research, a lot of development, a lot of time and money to make what is ultimately a pretty low margin candy. I think out of all the factors you mentioned, that first one sticks in my mind as the big no-no in this business. When you are selling candy at any type of scale, 
you have to have two commodities in bulk, right? Sugar and much of the time you need access to cocoa. And to be able to pull these products into your manufacturing environment, it takes a lot of capital. So this is not the kind of business that a small upstart can enter and succeed in a rapid fashion. That's why we see so little change in the checkout aisle of our grocery stores, which is the prime place where I keep up with candy trends. Although in my Harris Teeter, there is a whole, uh, boy, half of an owl devoted just to candy. And I think another half owl devoted just to chocolate and chocolate bars. But you'll notice the brands that have been around since the 70s are still the brands that have that space today. And that's just because it is hard to run this business profitably when you're buying cocoa and uh, sugar in bulk and many times on futures contracts. Not the type of contracts that we know in the the futures and commodities markets that traders uh, play with, but real futures contracts where you're paying for forward delivery of a commodity some six to nine months to a year ahead of time. This take, business takes a lot of capital, and there's not a bunch of profit in it at the end of the day. So let's talk about some of the businesses that are managing to make somewhat of a profit in the place and have done for a while. I remember, I don't remember if we did it for a previous industry focus episode or if this is just a side of desk conversation I had a number of years ago. But I remember Jason Moser talking to me about the fact that he was shocked Tootsie Roll was a public company. And at the time, I was also shocked to hear that Tootsie Roll was a public company, or or it should say Tootsie, which I believe is the name of the business itself. But this is one of the very rare pure play candy companies on public markets today. And I think investors just forget that it's out there in the first place. This is the business that makes not only the Tootsie Rolls, but they also have Dots, Junior Mints, Double Bubbles, uh, Blow Pops. It's a, a fun business, although it has not necessarily been the most exciting investment. Sure. You know, Emily, I only know one person in the investment community that even follows this company, and that is a fellow fool. TMF cop Rich Dupree. He knows this company pretty well, but I scratch my head to find other analysts at The Fool or um, people on Wall Street that followed. But this company's been in business since the 19th century. Um, it is in its present form, I think, since the 1930s. But the story behind this is that a company which was founded uh, for the Tootsie Roll manufacturer, was purchased by another family, the Gordon family, and that was in the 1930s. Now, the business didn't change very much from its founding up until about the 1960s. And that's when Ella Gordon and her husband, Melvin Gordon, inherited the company uh, from their family. They actually inherited a controlling interest. I don't know if they they bought the whole thing, but um, this couple ran Tootsie Roll for 53 odd years before Melvin Gordon passed away and Ella Gordon took over as CEO. Now, in all this time, what do we have? We've got a company that's only valued at $2 billion. Um, it's got revenue of about $505 million on a trailing basis, so annual revenue of roughly half a billion dollars, and net profit margins that range between 6 and 10%. Uh, this is such an interesting story because to me, 
it's an excellent opportunity if you own this iconic brand to participate in a whole new wave of marketing, to invest a lot, maybe in being on TikTok, Emily, to have all kinds of cool brand extensions. We see the bigger candy companies, which we're going to talk about in a second, doing this with a lot of their brands. But Tootsie Roll has remained sort of stayed in Stober, but it's got this uh, great, I think, perennial demand attached to it. But, you know, something happened last um Actually, I, I I thought this was last summer. This was actually in January. Something interesting happened to the stock in January. What was that? <laughs> yes, um, there was a bit of a, uh, should I call it a meme stock rally, right? Um, we're talking about retail traders targeting, in particular, companies that are maybe overlooked, undervalued, um, businesses that have maybe just been forgotten about by traditional media. And, um, yeah, Tootsie Roll was a part of that experience, actually. <laughs> Interestingly enough, it had um, a pretty great, I guess, uh, 40% run-up in January. And as you mentioned, it's really atypical for this business, which is relatively flat against the S&P 500 over its, uh, the course of its history as a public company. Yeah, I think this was the only stock during the meme stock craze. And I know it still like comes in waves, right? People aren't finished yet with trying to push meme stocks. This was the one that caught my interest earlier this year, uh, just because it didn't make any sense. I mean, this is such a sleepy company. But then when you think about it, maybe it's the perfect candidate to isolate, has a small capitalization. Uh, Wall Street bets, I think they were the ones that catalyzed it could put a lot of attention, a spotlight on this. And short interest briefly stock uh, shot up on this stock, which made no sense at all, Emily, because you know, as you point out, it's not really been this huge performer. It's not like the company is overvalued. Nonetheless, uh, short interest shot up and it had a brief flare and, and dance in the limelight. And I think things now are back to normal. But uh, going back to this idea that it's a quiet company that doesn't do much to promote itself or its brands. Um, Ella Gordon, she's very uh, media shy, famously media shy. She's one of the few CEOs on Wall Street who doesn't give any interviews um, or sit in after earnings to talk with investment analysts. You won't find any earnings calls transcripts on Tootsie Roll. I looked um, and could only find two Wall Street investment firms that even follow this company. Neither had updated their guidance since 2016. So, what does this mean for you as an investor? It means that it's really, really difficult to get any type of forward guidance on the company. And personally, myself, I do look at trailing uh, data when I when I think about what a company should be valued at. But I'm more focused on what's going to happen in the future, and it's really hard for me to try to understand a company's value without knowing, hey, you know, what does that cash flow look like 12 months from today? And given everything else I know about the company, what other assumptions can I make to, to try to extrapolate a few years forward? This is such a closely guarded company in terms of information. I think it that's that's something that's held the stock back, perhaps, the fact that they don't really want to talk about their performance, where they're investing. And if you read through their financial statements, they don't reveal a lot of additional information. They, they seem to give or provide the minimum that they can. Um, however, this uh, doesn't mean that Tootsie Roll is a stable annuity business in every type of uh, climate. They, they've had some uh, rough weather recently, haven't they, Emily? Yeah, they have. Um, 
it's it's been challenging, I think, for Tootsie Roll to kind of get out of its its previous mindset, if you will, um, of I guess their legacy products. And when we headed into the pandemic, we experienced a time where a lot of foot traffic into the the retail sales channels that have been responsible for the majority of this staple demand to really fall off. So 2020 was certainly a challenging year for the business, um, but that has rebounded somewhat as foot traffic into these these channels have come back heading into 2020. Uh, sales are, are somewhat normalizing this year, but even accounting for the weirdness that it was 2020, this is still a business that that hasn't grown sales really at all over the past five to 10 years. A very, I, w- I want to call it a stable performer, but when you aren't able to grow sales just at a base level rate, it's, I would just say slowly declining performer. Yeah, which makes you wonder why buy the stock at all? Over the last 10 years, the total return for Tootsie Roll is just 88%. That's a cumulative number versus a total return of 356% for the S&P 500 um, on an aggregate basis over the same period. But you know, there, there may be an idea here for some investors before we move on. Maybe this is a great uh, dividend investment because they do what they do very well and don't try to to reach much. They don't have much ambition to grow this company. It does issue a quarterly dividend that has a small yield of 1%. But Tootsie Roll offers an annual stock split on a 103% to 100 basis. So that means you're basically basically getting a 3% stock dividend every year or a 4% yield when you consider the extra stock you get. And this is sort of unusual in this day and age. I remember when I first started out in investing, it used to be much more common to see stock dividends um, that were annual in the form of these uh, small stock splits. But uh, a rarity these days maybe makes sense for this type of business. Before we move on, the only caveat I'll say here is um, the Gordon family is not really understood what the succession plan will be after Ella Gordon decides to retire. She is now in her 80s. So that might thwart the idea that this is that safe annuity type dividend investment, simply because we don't know what is uh, going to happen next or, or how the board is treating succession. Well, I have to say, as a big fan of Junior Mints myself, I hope that whatever is next for Tootsie Roll, I'd be really interested to see if um, we have somebody come in who has a different vision for the business. And not that anything is wrong with being, a, you know, to your point, an annuity style company, right? But at the same time, I think I think this is this is still a publicly traded company. Now, let's let's live up to that name of being a publicly traded company, right? Let's let's talk a bit about what our expectations are, what our goals are. So whoever comes in next, my hope is that they have a grander vision than than how. Tootsie Roll exists today. And that that is purely because of my love for Junior Mint. <laughs> Agree. <laughs> well, let's talk about Nestle a little bit. Now, Nestle is as one that investors are probably familiar with, with you know, their water business. They obviously have a conglomerate style to them, right? The different product lines that they're in. But they're also the creator and owner of, of candy and confectionery brands like Kit Kat, Smarties, Aero bars, which I think are mostly popular in Europe. So Nestle is certainly a player in the space, even if uh, you know, the confectionery aspect of their business is much smaller than their overall CPG focus. Sure. So they, they sold off their US confections operations to the Italian company Ferrero, which is well known for its chocolates in 2018. In this shift that we're seeing with a lot of consumer goods 
entities to, to go for healthier products. It's a big company, $351 billion in market capitalization, $92 billion in trailing 12-month revenue. That makes it the biggest consumer goods packaged or CPG conglomerate on the planet. And trailing 12-month candy revenue, although sort of a fraction of that $92 billion, is still a big number, $7 billion bucks in candy revenue. The company has a net profit margin that ranges between 7 and 11%. So here, um, not much to say because I think Nestle is more in a downshift gear with candy. I did want to point out one thing, Emily. You mentioned that water business. It's a big business in and of itself. It's about $8 billion in revenue. They've drawn a lot of flack over the years from the fact that being this huge conglomerate, they extract a lot of water from local communities. Now, they have the rights, so they, they buy the rights but then they take water from communities, bottle it, and sell it uh, around the US and the world. And they it seems like they're constantly under fire for this as maybe an unsound environmental practice because of the water rights issue and water scarcity, and also because of the footprint that plastic bottles create. So I wanted to give them a little credit today for doing something that's environmentally friendly. Um, they're prototyping a paper-based wrapper on their Smarties confectionery line that's gonna reduce their plastic waste on this line significantly. I was interested in this because I had um, been in the publishing industry, in the print industry specifically, for many years uh, on a finance team for a manufacturer. And we were constantly experimenting with the types of papers that could run through our machines. And this is essentially what Nestle is doing. It's using the same machines that produce the plastic wrapping for Smarties, but using now a paper-based wrapper that they hope can replace that, reduce a lot of waste. We should say here, though, these aren't the Smarties that you might be thinking about. That is the delectable, multicolored, sweet and tart Smarties that we all grew up with here in the States. These are a chocolate confection that's sold widely in Europe. I've never tasted a European Smartie, but that's actually the, the candy we're referring to here. I, I haven't either, and I have a very hard time imagining what a chocolate Smartie looks like. I'm a big fan of the regular Smarties and what I call regular Smarties, the American Smarties, uh, but are essentially just colored sugar packaged into little pellets. Uh, so hearing that was certainly interesting. I will say their decision to sell off their U.S.-based confectionery business was interesting to part of the reason why is because they wanted to focus on on healthier products and, you know, Putting the ESG concerns aside, it's, it's just a representation of those changing consumer trends, right? Um, I think the demand for, for some sort of candy, it's always going to be there. It's always going to be a treat. But I think they saw the inevitable shifts that were coming their way in terms of just on a day-to-day -day basis, demand for confectionery products versus, uh, I could just say, healthier products or what are branded as healthier products. It's true. I think the next company that we're going to talk about has been more in the mode of let's rework what we've got rather than sell them off. And this is another giant uh, formed out of the old Kraft Heinz company, before it was Kraft Heinz, actually. <laughs> so we're going to talk now about Mondelez, symbol MDLZ, which was formed when the then management team decided that they would take what they called the power brands out of craft. They would separate the grocery and power brands business. Power brands being at that time mostly 
cookies, and candy. <laughs> Those were the leading power brands. And um, the funny thing about Mondelez is that they spent months and months coming up with a name. I still don't think this name is caught on in the larger society, Emily. I feel like if I walked out on the street after we finished taping and asked, asked someone, do you know what Mondelez is? I would just draw a blank stare. But they do have some brands that I bet if you went to the street and asked some people, hey, do you know Oreos? Do you know Tate's? I believe it's Tate's Bake Shop. Do you know Cadbury or Toblerone? A lot of people would would smile and nod at you, which is exactly what Mondelez is best known for. And to your point, I think they've done a good job of taking what they have and then reworking it to be attractive to a market that would otherwise maybe not buy those products as frequently. Tate's is a great example, right? They're indulgent cookies, but they're thinner, they're smaller, they're in smaller packages, uh, branded and presented in a way that is a little less guilt-free, I suppose, than going through and buying a package package of, of, of different cookies, or or in this case, maybe compared to Oreos. Whereas Oreos has managed to really make itself stand out by its constant rebranding, right? The seasonal Oreos almost make it an experience as opposed to just uh, an indulgence that you make on a daily basis. So many good points there, Emily. Absolutely. So what Mondelez is doing with Oreos is what I feel Tootsie Roll Industries should be doing with Tootsie Roll and its other brands. Uh, so much experimentation. You know, you mentioned the packaging that is really going along with our shift in preferences. They, they're repackaging their candies into smaller indulgent packets. That's a win-win for them because it is a way to act like they are being a healthier choice. But at the same time, you know, they make a much higher margin whenever any candy company or beverage company sells a unit in a smaller package, that's higher profit margin for them. So that's great. Now, we should say here that um, Mondelez, which has revenue of $27 billion and $11 billion bucks in trailing 12-month candy revenue, it is a company that uh, over time is focusing on its chocolates, confections, but is also working on healthier lines outside of that part of the business in its biscuits, cheese, and grocery lines. Now, you may think biscuits <laughs> refer to something different than, than they are. This is a company that uses the British term biscuits to refer to basically cookies and crackers. So, in Mondelez's categorization, Oreos are biscuits. And before we wrap up here, we have to talk about the, I don't want to say notorious, but why not? Let's go with the notorious C's Candy, the business that um, Warren Buffett is a huge fan of, which the business, right, Berkshire Hathaway purchased, I believe, um, goodness, I'm not positive of the date, but it's been a very long time. Yes, 1972. I see you have it here in our notes. In 1972, Seize Candy. And uh, they're best known for their make of, of chocolate confections, right? So things like, like truffles or chocolate balls. And I have to say, I'm not a fan <laughs> of Seize Candy. Especially when I put it in comparison to things like Kit Kats, Butterfingers, or American Smarties. Oh, my. Uh, Emily... Since we were talking about the British name for biscuits, I think we're going to have to use a British pronunciation here. I think you're introducing an element of controversy in this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I, you know, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna go with you out here on a limb. I don't think C's is the greatest candy, in my personal opinion, but I'm gonna give them some props for this. 
I am very definitely an optimistic person. I, I tend to wake up on the happy side of the bed, but I have my moments. I have my days and occasionally I have my weeks. And when I'm in a mood, there's nothing I like more than a whole pint of ice cream to myself or a box of chocolates. Um, I won't say that I, I sit and weep over a box of chocolates, but I will certainly sit and mull over a box of chocolates when I'm down. And I think C's candy is good for that. But I ask you, can you even buy C's in a grocery store? Don't you have to order this via the, the internet or, or through a mail order catalog? I hate to make this sound like such an old timey candy company, but there it is. I've, I've never seen it in the stores, at least here in the South. Neither have I, and I've always imagined it as a premium option, right? You go out of your ways to indulge in C's candy. Um, but you did note this was an investment that that Berkshire Hathaway and Buffett made for, I believe it was twenty five to thirty million dollars. And um, at the time, you know, Buffett has been interviewed to say he was balking at the price of it. But it's generated over a billion dollars in profits uh, for the entire business, and it's a small part of Berkshire Hathaway, obviously. Uh, but it is kind of a fun part of it too, and I think it represents the mindset of Warren Buffett well for the types of investments he makes. Absolutely. And I think it's a great note to end on because maybe this is the business thesis here. If you have the capital, uh, let's say you're the Gordon family and you can own and control Tootsie Roll, or if you're Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway can purchase this candy company lock, stock, and barrel, then a candy company can be a great business for you over the decades, as C's Candy has been for Berkshire as Tootsie Roll Industries has been for the Gordon family, then you can just reap those pre-tax profits without a lot of investment and uh, just enjoy putting C's candy out at your annual shareholder meetings. It's always <laughs> visible on the, the table at uh, Berkshire's annual shareholder meeting. They're no notorious for hawking their products on <laughs> the companies that they own. So maybe that's the investment thesis here. First, amass several millions or hundreds of millions in capital, then invest in the candy business. Well, for the investors out there listening, hopefully we're investing a little bit in candy for this holiday season coming up, headed into Halloween. I know I, I living in an apartment complex with very little kids nearby, will get no trick-or-treaters, but I will still buy myself some candy anyway and indulge it personally. I have to ask though, Ossip, before you head out, What's your what's your Halloween indulgence, right? Let's say you have to have you know, one piece of candy headed into Halloween. What's your favorite go-to? It's going to be an indulgent, uh, small, miniature-wrapped Snickers bar. But I'll be honest here, Emily, it ain't going to be just that one piece. It's going to be like six or eight or 12 before the night is over. I really love that. I don't buy any candy bars during the year but I find myself compulsively eating those through the evening. And I will definitely be doing that on Halloween and yourself before we head out of here. I, I will do exactly the same. I will not limit myself to just the Snickers though. I will have to throw Twix in there as well. Um, one yeah. time of the year I get Twix. If you stick them in the fridge for just a little bit before you eat them, it makes them nice and chewy, which is exactly how I like my candy bars. 
Excellent recipe. Well, listeners, that does it for this episode of Industry Focus. If you have any questions or just want to reach out to say hey, shoot us an email at industryfocus at fool.com or tweet at us at mfindustryfocus. As always, people on the program may own companies discussed on the show, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against any stocks mentioned. So don't buy or sell anything based solely on what you hear. Thanks to Tim Sparks for his work on the screen today. For Asit Sharma, I'm Emily Flippin. Thanks for listening and Fool on. Fool on.